It's very quiet in here this morning. As you're aware, we're going through the book of Leviticus, and it's very much a flyover, which in a, there's part of me that, that doesn't like doing that because there's so many things that are, you know, left unexplored and unexplained. It's very much my preference to go a little slower and to let the class set the pace where... You know, when we get interested in something or we have questions about something, we can slow down in, until we all have understanding together. And maybe we could still do something like that if that, you know, happens in, in God's providence. But today we're very much going to be flying over Leviticus chapters 8 through 10. The title for the message, which is written up here, is Worship in Holiness or Die which is, this is the story where we have Nadab and Abihu. You remember those guys? They didn't offer holy worship to God, but it was strange, and they died because of that. And it's in this, these three chapters that God gives instruction for congregational leadership, that's his priest, and for congregational worship, you know, what they're to do together corporately in fellowship with one another and these chapters here are the seedbed that sprouts into church leadership as we know it and how we understand corporate worship within the church. This is the foundational instruction to how we even understand our own worship with the leadership and what we do when we gather together, which these were the two things that people would ask about when they were looking for a, a new church to attend and they would call me here at the office. They would ask a question about church leadership, which would be followed by a question about what we did in our worship together because these people didn't want to end up at a church where Nadab and Abihu were doing strange things. The question that they would ask concerning church leadership to kind of test us and see what we were about, they would say, can women be pastors at your church? And the first thing I would explain to them is, it's not my church. <laughs> I don't have a say in who the leadership is. It's Jesus' church, and so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Timothy 2, 12, and this is what he says about his church. He says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was formed first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into trespass. I want to say this is what God has commanded concerning leadership in his church, and our aim is to conform to what his word says, which people would then follow up with their, their second question, which would concern church worship. They would ask me specifically this question. and say, do you allow Hillsong or Bethel music songs at your church? And I'd tell them, it is not my church. And the music selection and the preferences must be holy. You know, it's not about what I like or anybody else likes. We gather together to do what God likes. 
And so we look to his word in which this is where we have a text in Ephesians 5 that ties directly into Nadab and Abihu. You will see later in chapter 10 that uh, when after Nadab and Abihu have been consumed by the Lord, Aaron gets told, don't get drunk with wine. He says, and you see this repeated in Ephesians 5 when it talks about the church's worship, worship music. This is Ephesians 5.18. It says, and do not get drunk with wine. It says, think about Nadab and Abihu. It says, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So we see there's direct connection into the church's worship and the book of Leviticus. But the way it happens, it, do, it doesn't just say, hey, I'm quoting Leviticus directly and here's the words, but you pick up the concepts and you remember the story and that's how you make the connection that these things are connected. And so our aim in worship is to do just as God has commanded concerning his leadership, concerning worship, concerning even our preferences and all of life, which is what Leviticus is going to go on to address. And in this text, we're going to see that the main thing that God wanted his priest or his worship leaders to learn was how to distinguish between holy and profane. They needed to know the difference between those two and also to distinguish between clean and unclean. And I've drawn this out in with the, you know, the diagram of the tabernacle here to help begin to give an understanding of how these sort of things work. And there's this holiness continuum that's being taught in Scripture where there's a way that leads to death. You know, uncleanness represents death, leads to death. But there's also a way which leads to life and it involves being clean and it's a move toward holiness. And that has to do with, you know, the way. You know, the way to God is truth rather than lies. The walk is, you know, living according to His Word rather than contrary to it. These concepts we're going to talk about a little bit more next week, but just beginning to introduce them now. But you see, what, what makes a person clean has to deal with sacrifice at the altar of burnt offering and washing at the wash basin. So there's a people, you know, the priests are called holy. They're holy in their status, but you find out they don't actually live that out in their condition. Even though they're clean, sometimes they get dirty and they need washed off a little bit, which helps make sense of, you know, when Peter wanted our Lord to wash his whole body. He's like, well, you know, Lord, if you have to wash us and that's how it works, then just wash my whole body. It's like, no, you're already clean. You just need to have your feet washed off sometimes. Because sometimes, because you live in the world of the profane, you step in unclean stuff and you just have to have your feet washed. That's all. But he says, but one day, the holy place is going to consume the whole earth. But it, it starts with God setting apart as holy. Because God is the only one that is holy. And you remember back in creation that... Uh, God made everything to be resting in His holiness, in His holy day, which has no evening, no morning. But we live in the separate place of the profane, and God's holy kingdom is beginning, 
you know, like a, a tree to be planted and to grow until it consumes the whole planet. And if you have questions about that, you can ask me next week. We'll talk about that a little bit more. You can ask questions uh, th this week as well. But this, this text starts to build out these sort of concepts. If you think that they're difficult to grasp, they are. So you can be comforted by that. But they are graspable, and God's word is clear concerning these things. Here in Leviticus, the story of Scripture has really slowed down. We're not looking at huge generations of people who are being born, but we're zoomed in to a week at this point. Uh, back in Exodus 40, it started on the first day of the first month in which the tabernacle is built, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in it. And now it's only been seven days. We're going to be in the, the eighth day here, and it's ordination week for the priest who are going to be the worship leaders of the congregation at God's dwelling place. In chapters 8 through 10, they focus on the priestly ministry, which is going to be foundational for future church leadership and worship. You're going to see there's certain character qualifications for these men, like we read about in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, there's certain capabilities that they're to have in teaching and instructing the congregation. This text here, as ancient as it is, has been written down for our instruction even today. Chapter 8, we'll see that God is holy in how his leadership is appointed. In chapter 9, that God is holy in how worship is conducted. And in chapter 10, that God in his holiness won't tolerate priests or practices which deviate from his word. Well, the key passages to understanding this section are in chapter 10, if you want to turn there. And I read those as we begin here. 10.3 is the first verse we'll look at. Leviticus 10.3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what Yahweh spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be glorified. That's a key verse. The other key verses are in chapter 10, verses 8 to 11. Let's read those, verses 8 to 11. Then Yahweh spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or a strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and so as to separate between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to instruct the sons of Israel in all the statutes which Yahweh has spoken to them through Moses. So as we consider this text together, let's begin in prayer. Our gracious Lord, you are holy, and you have given us a holy word, which gives us the status of holy people, though we are not holy in and of ourselves, though set apart to you. But you have made us clean from our sin to walk according to your commands, and you have empowered by your spirit the ability to walk in those things therein. I pray that you would give us a greater and clearer understanding of leadership over your people, 
and also how we're to worship you when we gather together and that you would give us a holy fear which would bring us to never act flippantly in anything that we would do in your name, but to always carefully seek to live by your word and to remember that you are merciful with us even when we stumble in seeking to do that. For you are most interested in our hearts, and we pray that you would bend our hearts toward your holiness as we worship together in consideration of your word. Would you teach us by your spirit? Amen. Join me and go into chapter 8. We'll begin there and look at the first five verses, chapter 8. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as Yahweh commanded him. Then the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing which Yahweh has commanded us to do. You see an emphasis throughout here that's repeated on God's holy word and how his worship leaders are to be ordained before the congregation that they're going to serve. And you see here that God appoints servants, not innovators. He didn't say, I'm appointing you guys because I know you have some really good ideas and could give me some of those ideas so I could know the best way to do this. But this is similar to like a restaurant owner. When a restaurant owner hires a table server, they're not hiring the table server to put new items on the menu. They want the, the server to serve what's on the menu and only the menu. So if the server works at a steak restaurant and somebody comes there and they want tofu, like this is a steak restaurant, we don't have tofu, but server guy goes out and he gets tofu. This is strange. That guy gets fired, which is an allusion to what happens with Nadab and Abihu. It's okay if you want to eat tofu, but it is weird. God has already set the menu of the sacrifices that are to be offered to him, and it's according to his word, and now he's ordaining his priest servants to be over the servant nation of Israel to lead them in worship. And they're not to tamper with the menu. They're only to serve what God commands. And you see, God's word is central in their leadership and their worship. Uh, It's supreme and it's sufficient. It doesn't need anything added to it. And here, the sacrifices, the supplies, and the servants are all set apart as holy And this phrase is repeated seven times, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. So this is the phrase that ends up ringing in your ears throughout chapter 8. As you see, there's the supplies that are set apart as holy, the servants are set apart as holy, and verse 15 is the third use of this phrase, set it apart as holy. If you look at verse 15, That's the last words in that verse. They're to set it apart as holy, to make atonement for it. Here it's talking about the altar of 
the burnt offering. Now, when we think of atonement, we tend to think about it's how sins are forgiven. The altar had not sinned. It did not need its sins forgiven. So then this makes you think, well, maybe this word atonement means more. I should do a word study. This is the first rule of word study. Don't do a word study. Do a words study. Look at all the words around that word, and that will help you to understand what it means. You're like, well, what does this word atonement mean? Well, obviously, the altar didn't need to have its sins forgiven, but what was happening is it was being set apart to be dedicated to God's use, which is what this word atonement means here. We had talked about that last week, that part of what that word means is being dedicated to God, but it also does connect into being purified to be set apart to him and to the forgiveness of sins as well. You read throughout this text that the way that atonement was made is there's this repeated phrase of Moses slaughtered. Moses slaughtered. Moses slaughtered. You know, the way that things are set apart to God is through substitute blood atonement. You know, that's how he would purify the priest and prepare them to be totally dedicated to the work of ministry, and they were totally dedicated because he had delivered them. You know, they didn't come to dedicate themselves so that he would deliver them out of Egypt. He already had delivered them out of Egypt, and now he's sanctifying them to be dedicated to him. And you see in this text that there's no room for half-devoted followers. God only has offerings of people's lives that are a total burnt offering. They're totally transformed, totally given to him because when his glory appears, things can't be unchanged. They have to be transformed when the pillar of fire appears. Now, some observations about the priest ordination week that are important to see here is that this leadership was ordained by God before the congregation. You know, they weren't voted in by the congregation. You know, God made these men and he appointed them, but it was before the congregation and they would be affirming and observing the work that God was doing among them. And this moment was meant to be instructive about God's instructors so that people would understand how God ordains his leadership for his congregation. And the way that it works is Yahweh speaks to Moses. All the congregation is a symbol. And Moses did just as Yahweh commanded him. And the supplies and the servants are set apart as holy just as Yahweh commanded. And the burnt altar is set apart as holy to make atonement for it. Say these things are dedicated for a particular purpose, being devoted to God, and they're not to deviate from that. And sacrifice is made just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And it was an offering by fire to Yahweh, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And as they carry out the sacrifices, there's a logic to the sacrifices. In verse 14, they offer the sin offering, which was to teach them you're delivered by a substitute. You know, you, deliverance isn't something that you accomplish for yourself, but it's by God's substitute. And you associate with the substitute by you know, laying your hand on the head of the sacrifice. 
recognizing that you deserve to die and should be totally devoted to God with your whole life. The next sacrifice is the burnt offering in verse 18, which has to do with dedication, ordination. And within this, verse 23, blood is applied to the priest to show that they're dedicated because blood has been applied to them, because something has died in their place. Blood has been shed so that they could be covered by that substitute blood. In verse 25, they give the fat, which was the best part of the sacrifice, remind them that the best was to be given to God. The best of their, their life was to be dedicated to God in thanksgiving of his deliverance for them. And they celebrate with unleavened bread, as we will today when we take the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of having unmixed devotion to God. You know, there's no leaven within the bread that we've been delivered from our old master to a new master. We've been delivered from our old way of life to a new way of life. In verse 27, they raise up a wave offering. What do you think is the significance of having a wave offering at this point? You can just think of the direction of it. You hold it up and you wave it. Resurrection, you know, raised to a new master, raised to new life. Moses was ordained in verse 29 just as Yahweh had commanded him and then Moses sets apart Aaron as holy and his garments and then Aaron's sons and their garments and we see, you know, ideas of holy and clean even within this that Moses, Aaron, and his sons are set apart to a holy status. You know, they have a unique job and a unique way in which they're to worship God. And their garments are set apart and they're to be clean in their condition. You know, they're not to be mixed with how other people worshipped. But they were to be clean, which this word clean and unclean, why it's hard for us to grasp it is we're thinking of like stuff is getting dirty and washed off. But this has more to do with is something ready to worship or not. And that's the concept there. So the, their garments were set apart. They were ready to worship. They had the right garments because they could have other clean clothes, but they were just the wrong clothes to be wearing at the time. And they shared in a fellowship meal and they were ordained through seven days. This is their ordination week. And verse 34 of chapter 8 reads, Yahweh has commanded to do. Okay, Yahweh has commanded to do as has been done this day to make atonement on your behalf. In this way, well, let's read those other two verses and this, this will make a little more sense. It says, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days. So where does your mind go when you think about how much Bible you have at this point? Day and night, seven days. Yeah, we're thinking Eden. Remember, the tabernacle was a model of Eden. So our minds are there, and he says, and keep the charge of Yahweh. Like, who was supposed to do that back in Eden? Adam, now who's doing that? the priest. Uh, the priest is a picture of a new Adam, and he's to keep the charge of Yahweh 
so that you will not die. And you're hearing you know, echoes of what God said in the garden. He says, for so I have been commanded. Thus Aaron and his sons did all the things which Yahweh had commanded through Moses. You see here with Aaron and his sons, the obedience to God's word and instruction and worship are life or death issues. It's worship God according to his command or die. Worship him in holiness or die. And we also learn about how the Bible works, how God's word works. God spoke to Moses and through Moses in which he gave through him authoritative scripture. It was clear. People could understand it. It was sufficient. They didn't need more than what he had given them. It was something that they were able to understand and to follow, which is why we read Aaron and his sons did all the things which Yahweh had commanded through Moses. Now, these priests within the camp of Israel, they weren't different in kind from Israel. Like there's just, there's priest and then there's laity. You remember all of Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. It wasn't just some guy or priest and the rest of you are just lay people. It's like you're all supposed to be a kingdom of priests, but these guys are not different in kind from you, but they're different in degree. You know, they're, they're set apart to be more devoted to the instruction of God's word and the living of it to provide examples for others, which you know how this is taught also in 1 Timothy. As Paul urged Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and the teaching because it's going to affect everybody else. He was concerned about right teaching being maintained, and these priests would be especially set apart to the study of God's word, the living of God's word, and then the teaching. What you read about priest Ezra in Ezra 7.10, you know, he devoted himself to study live and teach God's word. And then in, in that order. Why is that so hard to say? And in that order. The priest, this Levitical priesthood, as you know, isn't the only priesthood. Okay? Can you think of other priesthood, priesthoods throughout Scripture? Yeah, which ties into Christ. You got to say it where I can hear you. No, he was a Levite. Yeah. So you got Levitical priesthood. There's the one that's of Christ according to, to Melchizedek. The other one is sitting in this room right now. It's you guys. It's the priesthood of all believers. Concerning Christ, this is in Hebrews 5, it says, you know, in this way also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he also says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If you read through Hebrews 7, you hear this comparing and contrasting with the former priest and Jesus' priesthood. And it says in 
Hebrews 7, 23 to 28. And the former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So Christ's ordination as high priest was at the cross, but he was not only being, he was the sacrifice and the priest who was being ordained, which then turns into him being the wave offering three days later on the calendar. Jesus was ordained as our high priest after his perfect once-for-all sacrifice of himself. And I would read you the whole book of Hebrews to explain that, but we don't have time for that. So you just write a note to yourself to do that later today. We also mentioned that there's the priesthood of all believers in Christ in which you see what he, he begins to do is he, he comes as perfect Israel on behalf of Israel to do what he commanded them to do, where he told them, you know, if you obey my word, then you'll be a kingdom of priests, which what happened was they didn't obey his word. So he says, I'll be your obedience. I'll be your righteousness. I'll be the kingdom of priests that takes this message to the Gentiles like you didn't or like Jonah, you wouldn't. And he does this on their behalf, but you see the, the Levitical priesthood is looking forward to Christ's priesthood. But the priesthood of all believers were looking back to Jesus and what he did to bring us into the same mission as Israel of being a kingdom of priests. You see this in 1 Peter 2, 9, which you know is a New Testament epistle. He's writing to the New Testament to church, the, the New Testament church. And this is what he says. He says, you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood. And you see, he doesn't say a kingdom of priests because it's not that the church became its uh, own political entity like Israel was, but they're joined in that royal lineage by Christ connecting them to it to join in mediating God's presence to the planet, which this, this was the mystery of the church that is revealed that was uh, so perplexing at this time in history where they thought, oh, there, what, isn't there a distinction between Jews and Gentiles? And God says, no, I've always, my plan has always been one new man, not just that Jews have the priesthood and Gentiles don't. They're like, wait, what, how, did, how, how did Gentiles become part of the priesthood? It's like, that was always my plan. He was, remember, Abraham was the father of a multitude of nations, not just one nation, but from his family, was blessing was supposed to go to all the earth, and it is. 
And you hear that there in 1 Peter 2, 9 of the purpose of being part of that priesthood. It says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And who wants to take a stab at when the church was ordained and how that all happened? It's going to be the next book that Dave's going to preach on. Don't know if I'm allowed to tell you that or not, but it's in Acts chapter 2. The pillar of fire shows up, but it's not just on the tabernacle. It's on every believer. The fire is on them. And so you see, God's intention was always, his place was always going to be the people. And so he rests upon his people who are going to be a reflection of that pillar of fire, that light that is to spread to the ends of the earth, which is why that phrase gets repeated over and over throughout Acts, you know, to the ends of the earth, from Judea to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, because the suffering servant's mission in Isaiah becomes our mission. He comes and he does that mission. He recruits us into it and continues to carry it out through us, the mission of spreading his image and glory to the ends of the earth. What we learn about worship in Leviticus 8 is it's to be done just as God has commanded. And under Moses' administration, there were certain specifics that were prescribed that we don't practice today. That's probably obvious enough, but the principle remains. So one way that I thought of to kind of help us understand that is to think about you know, God's people as worshipers at this time under Moses' administration were in their toddler stage, and they're living in the house with their parents, getting ready to move out of that house and under Jesus' administration, which isn't going to have as many specifics, such as you think about living in your parents' house, you're told, you go to bed at 9 p.m., but then when you grow up and you move out of your parents' house, you don't have to go to bed at 9 p.m., but you do have to go to bed. You need to sleep before tomorrow. So while you might not carry out the practice in that same specific way, because you're not in your parents' house anymore, you've grown up, you understand, well, the idea was that I need to make sure I need to get enough rest for tomorrow so that I'm useful it's like that with Moses' administration. Like you can even just think about the fact that they have, they built a building in which, and there was a place where people gathered. Now we don't, God did not give us blueprints for building this place that we're in, but we understood God's people need a place. So let, let's devote our money, let's devote some supplies to making a place where God's people can gather. Sometimes that's person's house, sometimes it's renting a school, sometimes it's you have your own place like this, but it's like we get the idea. You know, we, we've matured in our worship where we get the principle that God wants us to have and we carry it out and we don't need some of those specifics. We also see here that with the priests, they were to, to keep the charge of Yahweh, which, you know, very much in my mind, it echoes what Paul said to Timothy when he exhorted him, preach the word, you know, in season and out. You know, be devoted to this and don't deviate from it. You know, he was saying something similar to these priests. He's like, 
Preach the word as it was given to Moses. Don't do anything different than that or you'll die. As you know, as it talks about in James, judgment is stricter for teachers, especially when they teach falsely. You also read in Scripture how the people end up being like the priests. They end up being like the leadership. And so it's crucial that these men be qualified according to God's work for the sake of the whole congregation. And it's echoed in verse 35 that these are the things that have been commanded. You know, Moses didn't say, well, this is what God commanded and I have some extra ideas on how we could do this. It's like, this is what he has commanded. You know, God hasn't left us in the dark concerning leadership or concerning worship. He hasn't left us to our own wisdom and devices. He hasn't left us to our own whims and preferences. The heart that wants to honor God with thanksgiving and fellowship with others because we have peace with God is given to wanting to know God's instruction. You know, because we, we know that the greatest joy is in knowing Him and what He's commanded us to do, beginning with repent and believe. And He graciously doesn't leave us guessing on how to live our lives for them. You know, just the same with the Israelites, they're out in the wilderness. Well, what do we do now? He starts telling them exactly what, what to do. And it's the same for us in the church. God has instructed us in exactly what to do. Going to Leviticus 9, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now it happened on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. So now we've gone from, you know, the first day of the month to now we're at the eighth day of the month. And in this one day, uh, we read that Yahweh's glory is going to appear again. And it's going to teach people about salvation and holiness. And you remember how he had talked about salvation in the past, that it includes destruction, like God destroying Egyptian enemies. It includes deliverance, like the Israelites being delivered into the wilderness. But it also includes dedication. Now these people are dedicated to God out of thanksgiving for that deliverance and because he destroyed their old master and their old life. And all of this is moving to the salvation explanation that's given at the Day of Atonement. So right now in this day that we're going to get in where the thing happens with Nadab and Abihu, that happens on the same day as the Day of Atonement, which is going to, you know, right after that happens, you're thinking, we want to very much understand what holy and profane is and what clean and unclean is because we don't want to die like those guys. So explain it to us. Explain atonement to us because we don't want to be consumed like that. So that event's going to heighten the, the need and the seriousness to get things right, to do just as Yahweh commanded because people are going to see this is a life or death issue. You know, how we worship is a life or death issue. This is the grand opening of 
tabernacle worship. You know, the structure is all in place. The menu's been written. The servers and their supplies have all been set apart for this unique purpose. And the people are all gathered together, eager to come near, to see glory. And this happened on the eighth day. When is the eighth day of the week? Yeah, that's the, it's the first day of the next one. So the, the eighth day in Scripture is always looking forward to the day when the Sabbath isn't the last day of the week, but it's the first day and every day, the, the only day. That's part of the significance of the eighth day. You can just keep that in mind when you're reading your Bible. The priest servers are to bring the, the people near, but the way that they do that is only if they stick to the menu. And in verse 4, it says, you know, if they do this, uh, they bring an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before Yahweh and a grain offering mixed with oil. It says, for today, Yahweh will appear to you. And Moses declares in verse 6, this is the thing which Yahweh has commanded you to do, that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. You see here that God's glory is tied up with doing just as he commanded and that he's going to be jealous for that glory and for his instruction and things going only as he has commanded. Life was different in the camp when the priest did just as Yahweh had commanded versus when they didn't. When they did, they were brought near to the God who promised their forefather Abraham, I will be their God. Well, looking now toward the end of this chapter as we continue to fly over through it, Verses 23 to 24, it says what happened here was Moses and Aaron, they went into the tent of meeting, then they came out and blessed the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. And the words that you hear echoed throughout here are near, near, near. This is how you move near to God, and it's the way that you get near to him is just as he commanded, just as he commanded. And that's what happened, and the, the people came near. The glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. Then the fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And all the people saw it and shouted and fell on their faces. You can see when the glory of God appeared, it couldn't be ignored. You know, people couldn't be left unchanged. And it consumed in entirety, the burnt offering, which symbolized their total dedication to him. And it consumed the portions of fat, which was the best portion. It was giving God your absolute best because you wanted to show your dedication to him because you were so thankful that he had delivered you. What this teaches us about holiness and worship is that following God's instruction concerning worship it has a purpose. There's a reason behind it. It's that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. And you know that as we behold his glory, it's 
in that that we become like little mirrors of His glory, that we become like the things that we behold, which is why we're so jealous to guard worshiping God as He has commanded us in the church, because we want to see Him as He is so that we reflect Him as He is, so that we have maximum delight in Him, the most faithful witness of Him in the world in our gathering. Just as the pillar of fire rests upon every single New Testament believer, so that our whole lives would be consumed with His glory and making Him known to the nations. Worship is a call to delight in God, which, you know, we keep talking about this concept of within the tabernacle worship, the, the tabernacle was a model of Eden. The word Eden means delight. You know, their, their movement was always to be toward delighting in God, which is what that word rest means, by the way. Rest is delighting in God. It's enjoying God. I tend to think of it as non-activity or taking a nap, but it's not non-activity. It's activity in God. It's the activity of enjoying Him, the activity of being devoted to Him, belonging to Him, delighting in Him and everything functioning as it should in his world. If you think about these things and you hear God's commandments and you think about them and it just seems like a burden to you, it's because you don't know him as he is. It's because you haven't really tasted his kindness to know that he is good. Because if you have tasted his kindness, then what happens in your life is you get this an acquired taste that Jesus had, where your food is to do your Father's will, and anything less than that won't satisfy you. You want to know his commands, and you want to live by them because they become the joy of your soul, because it's how you enjoy fellowship with your creator within his creation. When a life is truly dedicated to the Lord because he's delivered it, it's entirely consumed with living as he has commanded. But when a life isn't truly dedicated to God's commands because it isn't delivered, it's consumed in death, which we see that in chapter 10. If you'll join me in looking there, Leviticus chapter 10. We'll look at the first three verses. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and put fire in them. Then they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what Yahweh spoke saying by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be glorified. So Aaron kept silent. Now looking at this text, you know that incense was a part of Israel's worship. They had an altar of incense. But the way that Nadab and Abihu went about this was not something that he had commanded them to do even though it might have looked that way, sounded that way, and involved things which God had given instructions about, this was 
strange fire, not commanded fire. And you hear that break that's emphasized in the text where you keep hearing, just as Yahweh had commanded, just as Yahweh commanded. And then you read, he had not commanded them. It was a deviation from what God wanted. It was not holy, but strange. It was profane in that it was not commanded them. It was unclean in its condition. What I mean by that is what we see in verses 8 and 9. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come into the tent of meeting. You put two to two together. It's like, well, what happened? The guys were drinking a little bit too much, and they came up with some crazy idea, and they were worshiping however they wanted, and they were filled with wine rather than the Spirit, which that concept gets tied into Ephesians 5. Make a note to yourself to read Ephesians 5 later, and you're going to see ideas of sacrifice and aroma and what God delights in all echoed there, Ephesians 5. So you got, you got two homework assignments, Hebrews and Ephesians 5. Why, why fire? Why is it fire that they're consumed with? And what, what has been being consumed with fire up to this point? Yeah, the sacrifices. So what happened with Nadab and Abihu is when they didn't offer the right sacrifice, they became the sacrifice. You know, when they didn't associate with the substitute sacrifice, they don't have a substitute. They don't have a substitute that gets burned in their place. They just get burned. This was a call to worship God in holiness or die. But you see here that Nadab and Abihu, they did things their own way rather than according to God's commands. They were flippant in their approach rather than fearful. They did what they wanted to without consideration to what God wanted. As we're all familiar with throughout Scripture, we understand this concept that either Jesus pays for your sins or you do. You know, there's this an eternal debt that you have with God because you've offended the eternal God. And either one who is of eternal worth pays that eternal debt for you because he has eternal worth, or you pay for it yourself for eternity. The way that you become holy must be holy. This is what we talked about last week. The way that you become holy must be holy. The way that you become set apart to God must also be set apart to God. Uh, you can't worship him however you want. You have to worship him according to what he says in his word. Uh, as a congregation, anything that we do, we have to be able to go back to God's word and say, we're doing this because God told us to do it here. This is where he gave us the instruction that leads to this decision. This is how it's in conformity with what God has said. You must be made holy by that which is holy or die which is going to end up pointing us toward how we need the Holy One of Israel, which we read more about him in Isaiah. 
And we need the Holy One of Israel and His law, which He's going to bring. Now, the sacrifices in Scripture, they're, they're always spiritual. And after Christ fulfills what was taught by the Old Testament sacrifices, we continue in the same spiritual worship as instructed, but we're under the law of Christ rather than under the law of Moses. We come under Christ's instruction in worship rather than Moses. You'll read this in Hebrews 7.12. It says, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. There are, this is the simple way to kind of think about that, because you recognize, you know, these categories of clean and unclean come to us, and we think about morality primarily when we get into the New Testament. We'll talk more about this next week, but we don't think about it in terms of having clean clothes when we show up here, lest we get stoned to death or burned or something. But what was different then was the physical presence of Yahweh right there before them. That was one thing that was different. Now, that's, this doesn't pit physical against spiritual. Those aren't opposites, but the way that God is physically with us is different and that he's dwelling in believers rather than outside in the temple. So when we look back at this uh, First Testament instruction, what's different is the practice. Our practice of worship is different, but the principle is the same. And we'll talk more about this next week in the practice. The practice looks different, but the principle is, is the same. You know, we don't sacrifice bulls because the purpose of that teaching instrument has been fulfilled. We just read about it. But in principle, we still learn the same thing, that we're saved by a substitute sacrifice. In this text, as we read Earlier, Yahweh says, I will be treated as holy. This is a promise. You know, it's going to happen. If you treat him as unholy, he will still be treated as holy. Uh, he'll deal with the deviations. And he says, and before all the people, I will be glorified. You know, he, he won't permit the continuing of his name not being glorified. He may be patient in it for a time, but because everything exists for his glory, in time, his glory will consume all things, either by lives being consumed with living in him or being consumed by him because they wouldn't live in him. And Aaron, you see the way he responded is he kept silent. This was a Job-like moment with a Job-like response. He just knew that God is right. And that's where you should always start in your thinking. God is right. Even though that this is incredibly painful, God is right. Even though I don't totally understand it, God is right, and I know that I can trust him, and I can't object. Aaron realizes the seriousness of holiness and the holiness of God, and he has no objection. He understands that God was right in what you do and that the way that you become Holy must be holy, and you don't get any say in the matter. You keep silent. Holiness teaches us that there's only one way, which you can see this in this diagram that I've drawn here. There's one way. There's 
one truth that leads to life. And we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But Nadab and Abihu did what was good in their own eyes. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. When we look back at what happened during this time in history, Paul gives us some insight in how to understand it in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have arrived. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So when we look at this and say, well, we would never make the same mistake as Nadab and Abihu you're probably about to make that mistake. He says, you know, take heed of yourself and make sure that everything that you're doing in worship of God is in conformity to what he has commanded in his word. What we learned about the priest or the leaders of the congregation in verses 10 and 11, in chapter 10 is they need to be able to separate between holy and profane. They need to be able to separate in their minds the status of things that are dedicated to God and things that are not. They need to be able to know the difference. And holiness is the thing that portrays absolute order under God's absolute rule. And the only way that it's enjoyed is by grace. You read through Scripture, you, you can't make yourself holy. But what you start reading is, in Leviticus, is the Lord says, I make you holy. He's the one who does that. He's the only one who can set you apart in him. And the priest needed to be able to separate the difference and also to separate the difference between the unclean and the clean. They needed to be able to discern what things are ready to worship God and what things are not. What things are moving towards life and which things are moving towards death. You know, which things represent life in God and which things demonstrate and remind us of death and the effects of sin in this fallen creation. And why did they need to be able to separate between these things? You know, verse 11 says, so as to instruct the sons of Israel in all the statutes. And another synonym for statutes is regulations. You know, God regulates our worship. So it's like this, and you don't go beyond those boundaries. And as you think about it, you know, if God's Word doesn't regulate our worship, then what does? You know, we do. You know, it's our preferences. It's just a reflection of our own image rather than His. And by what authority were they to instruct and understand these things. And it says, you know, that which Yahweh has spoken to them through Moses. You know, they were to be people who lived by the book, the book of Moses. They were to start with God's word and stay with God's word when it came to how they would lead and understand worship. God's word was to regulate their worship and not to be deviated from. This 
concept, I think, is captured well in the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, where they write, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will so that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Moses, as you read here, he addresses in verse 12 the remaining sons. It says, Then Moses spoke to Aaron and to his remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. And he says, Take the remaining grain offering. Now, maybe you don't have the two words remaining there. They're translated different. If you had a legacy standard Bible, you could see that for yourself. So that's my little plug. I don't get a commission on it. I just have really come to like this Bible translation because it helps you see something that's happening in the original text there. So these are the remaining sons, and they bring their remaining grain offering. You know, there's, there's a remaining fellowship with God to be had. Yeah, it's not, he didn't just cut them all off forever. It's not, oh, now we're all doomed to die. Because we're going to find out that uh, the remaining sons didn't fully follow the command concerning the sacrifices either. But there's going to be a, a difference. Both sets of sons didn't follow Yahweh's command to the letter. Because what happens here, you, if you read this later, is... Uh, they didn't take the part of the burnt offering outside of the camp and have it totally burnt. You know, they didn't do that, but you, can, you obviously are recognizing this was a unique day, and something catastrophic happened in the middle of their trial run and the grand opening of worshiping Yahweh at the tabernacle, which was two brothers were consumed. You know, things got disrupted, but... You see, God wasn't so much commanded, uh, concerned about the letter of the law as he was the spirit. What he was concerned with was the heart of those who were coming to worship him. God's delight wasn't in the sacrifices and offerings, but in the heart of the worshiper. You can hear this in Hosea 6, 5 to 6. This is Hosea 6, 5 to 6. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have killed them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice. Yeah, you probably know this more as yeah, he delights in mercy rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You know, oftentimes, as God's people, we get the spirit of the law, but we miss the letter. But we're not consumed. And you see, there was an obvious disruption in the priestly worship to which Aaron and his remaining sons, they had a heart to do it. And that was the difference. You know, they, they weren't flippant. They were fearful. They weren't just doing whatever they felt like doing, but they were concerned with honoring God. And God considered their frame and delighted to show them the spirit of loving kindness rather than the letter of sacrifice instruction. God knew that their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. 
God is gracious to those who fear him yet make mistakes. But he won't tolerate those who have no fear of God before their eyes and live carelessly and thoughtlessly toward what he commands. And in this chapter, Moses addresses Eliezer and Ithamar. And let me see this in 16. I'll pick up in 10, 16, and I'll start reading from there. As Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, behold, it had, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation and to make atonement for them before Yahweh. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses. He said, this is dad's interceding on his sons. Moses is angry. He's talking to the two boys. Aaron's interceding. And he says, Moses, behold, this very day they brought near their sin offering and their burnt offering before Yahweh. Then things like these happened to me. So if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of Yahweh? You hear his heart there. The heart of a high priest who wants to intercede for people in their weakness. You know, he doesn't intercede and say, you're right, they should be held to the law, we should kill them. But he says, you know, look, look what has happened. And he says, and look where our hearts are at. We want to do good in the sight of Yahweh. You know, this is where you know, I'm bringing out the point of, you know, God's focus wasn't on the sacrifice, but on the heart. And so Moses heard this and it says, and it was good in his sight. Again, we're hearing echoes of Eden and we're seeing a picture of a new Adam in Aaron. He's not like the old Adam who shifted the blame for his responsibility, but rather he steps in and he takes responsibility for those who are under his headship. And there's this hint of the curses being reversed. We're going to go back to the days of God said, and it was good. Aaron recognized that the sacrifices didn't go according to God's word, but he was fearful in continuing his participation because he didn't want it to be disobedience. You see, what he was learning was to be able to distinguish between holy and profane, clean and unclean, so that he could instruct the sons of Israel and all the statutes which Yahweh has spoken to them through Moses. The words of Moses in the life of Aaron were both to be instructive. And you see in this text that the offering that wasn't burnt outside of the camp by the priest was burnt inside of the camp by Yahweh himself, that he mercifully did what they had failed to do. But what this was to start to hint at is, I'm going to be your substitute lawkeeper. I'm not only going to be your substitute sacrifice, I'm going to be your substitute obedience also. That God's going to fulfill what he has commanded them in their place. Therefore, he can sympathize with them and show them mercy, even in their weakness, even in their failure.
concerning our worship, congregational leadership must ensure to be able to discern the difference between holy and profane, clean and unclean. Church leadership, as it's discussed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus, this is from Titus, it says, For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching so that he'll be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. Now, God's leaders have to know what things belong to God's kingdom and what things don't. They need to know the difference between the one truth and the many lies. They need to know what God has commanded and things that He has not commanded. They need to know the difference between the law of Abraham's land and this land in which we live in. They need to know the difference of what citizenship looks like in the kingdom of light versus citizenship in the kingdom of darkness. Congregational leadership is to have a close watch on their own life and teaching. There is a high priority on their character and their capability in teaching, which is required in 1 Timothy 3. It's like, well, why is this? It's like, well, because they're there to be examples of you shall be holy as I am holy. These are, there's also a reminder here with Aaron that our allegiance to Christ comes before even our own family. You can think about when Jesus said in Matthew 8, when another of the disciples said to him, Lord, per permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. This is a truth that Aaron modeled before all of Israel so that they could learn not only by word but by deed what it is to be holy to the Lord. So as we think about, you know, applying this message you know, to ourselves, it's not only understanding these things but to see the seriousness of our worship together and I forgot to bring something with me that I can bring next week, Lord willing, if I can remember. But it's something that I use to, to pray for our church leadership, for their character, to pray for our worship together. But for now, I encourage you to do that. You know, always every Sunday, be praying for the leadership, be praying for the congregation, be praying for the worship, be praying for the scripture reading. The, the praying, the singing, the sermon, the fellowship meal, celebrating the Lord's table, our interaction with one another and uh, coming with a servant's heart to, to see Christ in one another and to show Christ to one another. And I'll bring you something next week, Lord willing, if I can remember, to help you have some ideas on how to pray those things according to God's word because I have... Bible verse references on it as well, so it can be just as God commanded. Uh, for now, I'll close us in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Our gracious Lord, you are holy, and that strikes a very, and that gives an amazing amount of comfort to our hearts in coming to approach you 
with seriousness and joy. That we don't have to be afraid of drawing near to you, but knowing that what you're interested in is our hearts and not always getting it right to the detail every time. Thank you that you sympathize with us in our weakness when our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. We pray that here in our congregation that there would be conformity to the standard of your word and that there would be men following Christ worthy of imitation so that others would be disciple-making disciples as well, following that imitation and being models to others, that your word would come to us not in word only, but also in power, the power to live for you in holiness. Amen.